The Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners, a free-flowing conversation with leaders in the HR community, talking about themselves, the industry, and their work. Brought to you in cooperation with NERA, the Northeast Human Resources Association. Welcome to the Hennessy Report. I'm Dave Hennessy. Today's guest is Susan Mealy, the head of human resources at Foundation Medicine. Foundation is a fascinating organization transforming cancer care at the intersection of science and information technology. I have had the great pleasure of working side by side with Susan for several years when she was a senior partner at our leadership development division, Camden's Consulting Group. So I've seen firsthand what a great talent strategist and thinker she is. Susan has led the HR function in various industries, but she shares how she's really found her passion working in a field where she can make the biggest impact on so many people's lives. Susan talks about how the cornerstone of her HR focus was built around organizational design and how that's evolved to one that's also focused on team development. And Next up on the podcast is a two-part series from the NERA Annual Conference at Falmouth, Massachusetts. First up is Cynthia Ring, Chief People Officer at Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, and then Doreen Nichols, the Vice President of Talent, Culture, and Organizational Development at Eversource. And now we bring you our conversation with Susan Mealy. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Great to see you. To start, could you share maybe an early life or mid-career story that was an inflection point for you and what kind of got you going in this direction? My very first HR manager job was at Ziff Davis Publishing, which was a very progressive company from a talent perspective. And I had a boss who was the head of HR for the Northeast region who came out of the business. So my very first inflection, if you will, was that HR was a business partner. It wasn't a question of HR having a seat at the table. So my very early training as a young HR professional before HR as business partners became a thing, even before the Dave Ulrich book became very popular, was a boss who was like, you're sitting at the table. The next inflection point was when I went to Thompson And I had the opportunity to be the founding chief HR officer at a joint venture called Omgeo. And Omgeo was a pretty complicated business. And as you know, most joint ventures fail. And our... FinTech, right? I guess, sort of. Yes. It was was exactly that. As the founding HR leader, um, working incredibly close partnership with strategy was when my predisposition to linking HR strategy with business strategy and really being able to tangibly say, here's how HR is impacting the business strategy, whether it was through retention or hiring or organization design structure, processes and systems, that it was our partnership strategy in HR with the rest of the executive team that really enabled the success of that joint venture. Mm, So it was those two inflection points were always be a business partner and always link the work that we're doing to the business strategy and never be HR for the sake of HR. Ah, Excellent. And tell us a little bit about, now this is so exciting what you're doing here at Foundation. How did you get this job? How did you end up here? So I got a call from a recruiter in December of 2016, which I was not looking for a job. I was at Cambridge Associates and I was finishing my PhD 
my mom had just passed away. My daughter was graduating from high school. And I was like, oh, thank you very much, but I'm not interested. So three months later, they called back. They said there had been a CEO change uh, here at Foundation Medicine. Would I be interested in coming in for a conversation? And I was like, I don't need to come to be told what I already know, which is I've never led HR in a life sciences company. So, but you did work in life sciences. I did. I right. did a lot of consulting work when I worked at Camden and life sciences. In fact, I would say 50% of my portfolio right, right. was in life sciences. So anyway, I thought, well, one meeting's not going to hurt. The CEO was the first meeting. So I thought it's going to go well or it's not going to go and it'll be fine. <laughs> so I came in. He was new to Boston, new to precision medicine, which is really what foundation medicine does. And he's super eclectic guy. And we connected right away. And he was like, okay, there's going to be three rounds of interviews. And and I was still really unsure. And during that interim period, I had gotten a call about another job. So once you kind of start the process emotionally. <laughs> so I'm like, I was interviewing at another company that I really liked. And I had an offer from them. And I was not sure that I was going to have an offer from Foundation because I knew that I didn't have the leadership in, of HR and life sciences. And so I was waiting for my last round of interviews, and I went to talk with Ralph Roberto, who had been a mentor on and off to me, and I started telling him about Foundation Medicine. He's like, you need to go there. <laughs> and I was like, but I, but I don't have that offer yet. And he's like, you need to get it. <laughs> um, because Foundation was doing such exciting work, and because once you join an HR team, in life sciences, you, you're in that club. You're kind of peripherally in it, because right. I have I worked with Ginger Gregory at Novartis, I worked with Marvin Powers at Cubis. I did lots of project work right. within some really interesting life sciences business. I came back to meet with Troy, who was the CEO at the time, and um, he's like, you know, I really like you. I said, yeah, I, I have another offer, and I understand that I have a whole day worth of interviews next Friday. Um, he goes, yeah, no, we're going to decide on Tuesday. <laughs> we have an executive team meeting on Tuesday, and we're going to decide on Tuesday. And I was like, okay. And then on Tuesday, at 2 o'clock, I got a phone call from the recruiter, and I was told that I had gotten the offer. You're moving to the seaport. Yep. So tell us a little bit about that growth and about the science. One of the many interesting things about Foundation Medicine is we are both a science and a technology company, and our mission is clear. You could ask anybody who works here that what our mission is, and it, they will be able to tell you it is to transform cancer care. And the way that we're doing that is through we have a comprehensive genomic test, which basically tests you to tell you what are the markers of your cancer, and then how do you get the right treatment for it. So it is moving cancer treatment from sort of that blast chemo protocol. Like you have this type of cancer, you go through the normal regimen. It's not that right. Not, not, not that approach. It's that, right. We're trying, in fact, to move as many patients as we can from a chemo radiation kind of traditional way of treating cancer to understanding what your cancer markers are and finding a targeted precision medicine treatment for that. And are you developing those treatments no. or are you sourcing what's the right treatment that is out there in the world for you? Yes. Okay. I'll give you a great story that will, I think, make it very simple. We have a great patient story, 32-year-old woman who had very aggressive stage four colon cancer. We only work with late stage cancer patients too, um, which is... And that's, that's a very high likelihood of good not math, making right? it, stage right? Stage, three, stage four, four yeah, yeah. yeah. 
stage four is most terminal. Mm. Stage four colon cancer, she had a foundation medicine test, which is basically her physician ordered the test. They did a biopsy of her tumor. They sent it into the lab. The lab did its thing. The test showed that her cancer markers, the tumor markers, were actually breast cancer tumor markers that could be treated with a breast cancer drug. Wow. So she is full remission cured almost. Right. You know, I don't know if she's made met the five-year mark yet. Right. But, but the uniqueness of that tumor was that it was genetically matched with a breast cancer biomarker. Huh. So we were able to tell her that, and she was able to get a totally different treatment other than chemo and radiation, mm. which is a Amazing. standard protocol when you don't know what the underlying genesis of the, the cancer is. So how do the patients come to a foundation? Is it their doctors are recommending here, this is a great option? Yes. Should, do you work directly with so we have two, the care providers? We have two primary business lines of helping patients get our test. One is doctors, oncology centers across the country that we work with, and they say to their patient, we think you should get the foundation medicine test. They do a biopsy. Right now, our main product is a tissue biopsy. Sometimes in late-stage cancer patients, tissue is hard to get. Mm -hmm. So we're launching a similar product that is liquid. So, so from order in, client services, through report out. And that's where the technology piece comes in, which I'll circle back to that. So the science part is test comes in. There's a whole assay development lab that does the testing on the tumor that spits out a medical report that basically tells the doctor, here's what the tumor looks like and here's the possible treatments. Mm -hmm. So we have a comprehensive database that matches tumor type and biomarkers with treatments. So that's our, our clinical patient direct business. Mm -hmm. We then have a huge part of our business which works with the pharmaceutical companies who are trying to find patients to do clinical trials. So they have a drug that they're trying to get to certain types of patients, and we are working with them. So there's a partnership component partnership as well. Partnership with right. many, many biopharma wow. companies to help match their precision medicine with the right client or patient base. Wow. So it's super cool. That is really amazing. And you recently got bought by Roche. Yes. So yes. talk a little bit about that and what that means. So when, the I, when I joined Foundation, Roche had a 57% uh, stake in Foundation because oh. they are um, they are very dedicated to precision health for the sake of patients. So Roche is a 135-year-old business based in Switzerland. It's family-owned. It's a long game for them. and you not, know, all, not quarterly earnings. They're not no, into that game. No, yeah. no. It's not a quarterly earnings game at all. We feel very fortunate to have been purchased 100% by Roche because it took us off the street. And it took us off of that quarterly pressure to get profitable. And it was a tremendous infusion of capital to facilitate our growth exponentially. Mm -hmm. So hence why we, we had high growth, but now we were able to really accelerate that growth with the investment by Roche. And because Roche is a drug company, we are run as an independent unit because if we weren't, then all those other biopharma partners would not want to work oh, with us. Oh, that's good. I think we all feel very fortunate from a human resources and business perspective that we kind of have the best of both worlds. We're part of this giant pharmaceutical company that has tons of money and is really invested in precision health, and we have the autonomy of being an independent company. Yeah. So for me, 
and for the team of HR people here, I feel like there isn't really a better place to be doing HR mm. because we, we get to invest deeply in our people. We get to be part of and learn and pull from this giant, very successful, very well thought of from a people perspective company, and we get to keep our autonomy. That's exciting. That's so great. it's kind of like win, win, win. Yeah. Now I have HR colleagues where mm -hmm. it's sometimes being the head of HR can be quite lonely. Um, now I have HR colleagues at Roche and Genentech, which is really the U.S. headquarters mm -hmm. of Roche that we can bounce ideas off of. We have regular meetings to say we, we're struggling with this problem or right. we need help on this. And we can use them, their comp expertise and mm -hmm. to help facilitate our work here. So it's, it's really very positive. Can you talk a little bit about your new building, your plan for the seaport? We have grown quite exponentially. We had 900 people at the end of last year. We'll end this year at 15 or 1600. And we expect to double here in Boston Cambridge in the next two to three years. And when we started looking for where we could house everybody, because now we're... Because you're scattered around yeah, Cambridge. I've been to have, several offices here. We have a building here. that holds 500 people, which mm. is our lab space here in Cambridge, mm. that we lease the entire building. But we outgrew it. And now we have people here at this adjacent office building. And we took two floors in the seaport in the PTC building okay. um, a few months ago. And then we started looking around for 3,500 employees co-located. That kind of takes where we are now in the seaport and where we are in Cambridge. So we ended up choosing to work with WS Development mm -hmm. and um, the seaport. And we will be the leaseholders of a brand new headquarters. Um, You'll be the, the four, name on the building. Yeah, 400 yeah. summer. 400 summer. Yeah. That's great. It's 2022 building completion. We haven't broken ground yet, right. so it's exciting. I know it just hit the news not yeah, too long ago. Yeah, yeah. it's um, it's gonna, it will be beautiful. Yeah. And it's the location of it is really accessible from a public transportation because the 93 and the Mass Pike will be able to pull right into the parking lot. That's great. We're learning that so many more HR leaders like you are having much more input on the design of space because it impacts culture. Yep. It sounds like you're working on that as well. What are you thinking about as you think about the space? What are your goals? Well, it's so interesting that you asked that because the space that our building over at 150 is so much more collaborative than this temporary space that we're in here. And we have noticed a difference just on human resources and how we communicate and work together here versus there. The walls were lower there, this, the cubes were smaller. We were able to like kind of reach out and talk. talk. My office was all glass, so not didn't have a door like this. Mm -hmm. So just the impact that space has on collaboration mm -hmm. is just incredible. So my employee engagement team will be leading the employee engagement effort around what should the space be like mm -hmm. in that new building, really to facilitate our values around patients, collaboration, innovation, and mm. passion. Yeah. So we're going to try to infuse and use the values to inform how we work together in this new space. So That's it's super great. exciting. You mentioned um, the values. Yep. And why don't we shift to what you're doing and your goals uh, for HR here. Why don't you describe the culture? So the culture has been in transition because we went from being a venture-backed company. Oh, we're only 10 years old. So we went from being venture-backed. It was Third Rock, right? Yeah. yeah Third Rock-backed. Uh, startup to publicly traded small kind of scrapey company to now like some sizable scale 
grown, kind of semi-grown-up company. Mm -hmm. So the culture has been really in transition during that time. So part of our work since we were purchased by Roche was to really re-establish, um, re-energize, redefine what is the culture that we want Foundation Medicine to have. So we started that work really by refreshing our core values. I briefly said them and I'll say them again. Uh, collaboration, patience, passion, and innovation. So we are now infusing those values across all of our people programs to really get some consistency in how the culture feels and seems when you walk into any foundation medicine space or you talk to any foundation medicine employee. So it won't be just, here's our mission, but here's how through our values, we're going to achieve that mm -hmm. mission. So our work this past year since we were purchased, we want our own unique culture. We don't want to be subsumed by the Roche Genentech machine. Mm -hmm. So how do we establish that? And for me, um, as an academic <laughs> in this world of HR, sure. starting with the core values and making sure that people really understand what those are and that we start to live them and uh, hire to them and develop to them and um, measure to them was really important. Mm -hmm. So we're right in the middle of that right now. And we have really... Um, and is, would you say that core values, is that owned by HR? Mm -mm. All right. No, it's owned by the executive team. And so we had a wonderful, no pun intended, foundation to build from. But we needed to evolve that to be our own from an executive team and also to help us scale mm -hmm. and help be simple enough, as simple as our mission so that we could rally around it in all of our work that we do. Mm -hmm. so. Susan, I know from when I work with you and knowing you over these years that org design is really one of your passions. Can you describe the design of your team and maybe the evolution you expect as you grow even bigger? So from my perspective, when I think about org design, I think about first, what is it that we're trying to accomplish from a strategy perspective? So you can do it at the macro level, which is the business level. What are you trying to accomplish mm -hmm. from a strategy perspective and then design the organization to that, which is very much what we did at Omgeo and was a big part of sort of the success of that entity. So that's like the enterprise-wide mm -hmm. word design. When I think about it from HR, it's not dissimilar, but it's on like a smaller scale, which is what is the business strategy? Therefore, what's the HR strategy? Therefore, how do we need to structure ourselves? Mm -hmm. And I've been searching a little bit for the more contemporary way of thinking about HR structure mm -hmm. because I am really actually structured in a rather traditional way, which is business partners on the front end and centers of excellence sure. on the back end. And I think we actually need a more nimble hmm. model. I see us evolving into collapsing those in some way to more talent platforms and a different, easier way to deliver HR services. I'm really trying to put my org design hat back on and think about how we can do something a little bit more creative. How do you evolve as the needs of the organization evolve and grow? Yeah, and just um, the needs of employees, mm. right? Like if you think about generationally, just how more constant feedback. It's just like the collaboration <laughs> space, the way that people work together now is just very, very different. So the way that we give feedback should be different. The way that we develop people has to be different. Like we have to be thinking about the needs of the employees to enable the highest level of engagement as well as the highest level of performance to mm. enable our strategy. And, you know, we have a sense of urgency in terms of the science of cancer is moving so fast. 
everybody who works here is like, we can't slow down. Yeah. Susan, I want to ask you about how you build your team because you have a strong track record of developing HR leaders. I mean, I can think about just two people that came into our organization when you were at Camden that were really in administrator roles. Mm -hmm. And now they're both HR executives and other organizations have done that as well. So how do you spot talent and how do you develop it, you personally and your teams? So I do practice what I preach when it comes to our design. So first I think about, okay, what is it that we're trying to accomplish? What's the role? I try to really define the role well before I try to find the person to do the role. Because a lot of times you kind of get attracted to like a person or a set of skills, but it doesn't always match up to accomplish what you need. So when I came to foundation, I did the same thing I've done in most, which is like step back and be like, okay, what's the strategy? What's the structure? And then who are the people, right? And what I have learned over many years is the more diverse the team of HR people working for me, with me, mm. um, the more successful we'll be. Over the last many years, I've really evolved to make sure that we're hiring people who are passionate about HR for its impact it can be make on the business as opposed to HR for the sake of HR. Mm -hmm. So philosophically, I would say that's my primary underlying philosophy, which is if we're not impacting the business, then we're not successful. Right. How, so, do you, how do you link what HR is doing, the people strategy mm -hmm. and culture, how do you link that to people that don't work primarily in that space inside the organization? How do you make the connection for the organization? So we always, since my early, early days in HR, was to have some specific measures around how we were impacting the business. At Foundation Medicine, it's really easy because we are killing it on our hiring goals. And if we weren't, we wouldn't be able to meet the business. We wouldn't be able to execute. So this particular measure of success is uh, recruiting top talent. So it's a, it's really tangible and mm -hmm. easy. Right. Other places it hasn't been, right? It's been more retention or development. And then you have to really put in some specific things that you're measuring. Mm. When I worked with Ginger, one of the things we worked on was a top talent program. And one of the sort of success elements of that was having many different ways to look at this program and measure. Was it effective? Mm. And was it helping to achieve what it was meant to achieve. So we looked at things like how many internal promotions were made at director level. What was the uptake on the development initiatives? Were the executives engaged in the mentoring and were they seeing progress? Were the projects that were done by the mentor teams successful and implemented? So you have to measure it, but I'm not a data person. Mm. It's, it can be qualitative. I know a lot of HR teams are moving to complicated analytics. Sure. I don't envision. I think Google does a lot in that area, right? Yeah. Between now and the time I retire, that is not an aspiration of mine. But I, I do challenge us continually to measure. If we're investing in a program, how are we going to measure its success? Right. And how are we going to measure its success not by people liking it, by it actually making an impact? Mm. How do you stay unflappable? No matter what's going on, you don't seem like you're overly stressed. How do you do it? I would say that's another evolution. Earlier in my career, I took it very seriously. You know, I thought I was personally curing cancer. cancer. <laughs> I learned that you can't want something for the company or the CEO or for anybody really more than they want it themselves. Uh, and I felt like I had to start incorporating that into my philosophical way of thinking. Was there a moment that the light bulb went off for you on that? So I was driving so hard that I got sick. Yeah. And I was like, oh, 
So you um, never never did that again? I never so. did that again. And oh. partly at that time when I left, I spent two weeks at a yoga retreat. That has helped me to stay pretty balanced. So uh, I would not say that I am unflappable. There's a little bit of a The sun flapping. Yeah. <laughs> Susan, what advice would you give to your 30-year-old self if you could write a letter and send it back to Susan Mealy of 30 years old? Don't take it too seriously. Mm -hmm. It is not your problem to solve, and you're not responsible for the success or failure of the entire company. And I think a lot of people in their mid-career, mid-30s to early 40s, they're so career-motivated and so want to get to whatever place right. they're trying to get to. When I was at Thompson, I thought my next step was the next biggest job at Thompson, and then it was the next biggest job after that, mm. and then it was going to be the biggest HR job ever, and my career was defined very linear, linearly, and it was sort of like a conveyor belt. Like, mm. I was just going to keep going and going and going. Susan, you know we uh, produce this podcast at Keystone in cooperation with the Northeast Human Resources Association, and they have a young professionals group, and uh, we have the Young Professionals question of the podcast, which Megan Mandino, the producer of The Hennessy Report, is going to ask you right now. As an advocate for talent management and employee engagement, did you yourself ever have a mentor? I did. My very first HR boss was what I would consider my biggest mentor. I've had many over the years. You know, people have gone to for advice and wisdom and input into career decisions. But my very first HR boss was really the one who I think I learned the most from because of the story I told earlier, which is she refused to have HR take any kind of backseat to anything. And it just wasn't even a question. It was like we were and always had a seat at the table from my very first job. And now HR in many, many companies has achieved that, but not everywhere. And I guess my advice to young HR professionals would be don't go anywhere where you don't have an ability to have an impact on the business because then you're doing HR for HR's sake. Susan, what's an interesting fact about you that we couldn't find on LinkedIn? That I'm a certified yoga and Pilates instructor. Ooh, yes, I knew that. <laughs> couldn't find now that everybody else does. <laughs> what's a book or an idea that changed your life? The book that I think was most impactful for me was How Yoga Works. It's a parable. It talks about how to let go. And it was very important in that time in my life where I was trying to figure out how to both be a successful professional and not take it too seriously. Mm. And um, there's a particular line where it's like a pen is just a pen because you give it meaning to be a pen. And if you didn't, it wouldn't be a pen. It would be something else. <laughs> so it's a very interesting parable about life and about how you give things meaning. And if you don't give them meaning, they don't have the ability to control you. Impact you. you. Yeah. yeah. It's great. If you could go to dinner with any person, who would it be and why? Bill Clinton. I mean, his story, what he did. Where he came from. And how he got to where he was and how he comported himself, good, bad, or otherwise. And how he came out the other side of that was amazing. <laughs> you want to get it? It's, yeah. fa it's it is, fascinating. fascinating. And what he does now for the goodness of the world, right? So. He came from a very humble upbringing, mm -hmm. and um, you know he was just iconic in a, a time in my life where I was paying a lot of attention to that. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to hear his side of the story <laughs> and how he came out the other side, really relatively untouched. Right? I watched it so intently, yeah. and I just thought I would love to hear what he has to say. Hear about what this. he has yeah. to say. Interesting. Um, and not even saying I would like it or that I agree with it. Right. Just You're just fascinated by curious it. Curious yeah. about it. Well, thank you, Susan. Thanks thank for being you. a guest on the podcast. Great to see you, Dave. Great to see you, too. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to the Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners. Be sure to subscribe to listen to all of our conversations with leaders in HR. Go to keystonepartners.com and click on the podcast button.